ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa. And welcome to The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey and welcome from across the world's co-host, Peter Bale. Great to see you there. Bernard, how are you? I thought we talk about the world so often that, um, you know, I ought to go out and see what's there. Well, it looks lovely in the background there at the moment. And also I can, I can see in the foreground. Good Lord, there's a squat. That's a fox. That was a squirrel. No, it was a fox. It was a fox. Really? There's a bloody fox there behind there. Yeah. How exciting is that? That's the first time on the Hoon we have had a fox go through the background of the story. Yeah, probably, and probably not the last. And it's just chasing the ridiculous cat who lives here. It's a very stylish <laughs> fox, actually. But uh, it's, you okay. know, the urban fox phenomenon in London is quite extraordinary. So I, this is, we're basically turning this show into David Attenborough. I think so. And um, one of my great highlights this week was I was doing a live television cross on TVNZ yesterday morning to talk about the budget. And as mm-hmm. I was introduced as the publisher of the Kaka, an actual Kaka flew over us. Good Lord. And squawked. This is right in front of Parliament. Mm. So that was one of my highlights this week. It was uh, great news. I think maybe instead of the um, jazzy music, we need to get Simon to put in an actual Kaka into the Kaka. You know, I actually did this a couple of years ago, just as a trial in the actual one mm. of the audio podcasts I did. And I had the background noise of a bunch of kakas burbling and squawking away in the background. And then I got a wave of complaints from people saying, that just drove me nuts. <laughs> never do that again. <laughs> so I never did it again. Yeah. Tweet of the day, like they do in the, on Radio 4 in, yeah. in London, the tweet of the day. Now, Bernard, I have to tell you about my shirt, too, because it's a shirt. You know, I haven't got a gin, I've got the coffee, but the shirt. So are you one of those star-bellied sneeches? Well, I'm a star-bellied sneech, exactly. And, of course, um, you know, there were, there were some, some with, with uh, stars upon Mars, um, which, of course, is a do- Oh, there's the fox again. Did you see him? Yeah. <laughs> there's the bloody fox. Oh, I see him. He's, he's watching the hoon as well. Um, but the, the worst thing about, the sh- about my star-bellied shirt, Bernard, is that my friend Tom here... As soon as he saw it, said, oh, you're working at Pret now. So Pret, of course, for those people who haven't been to Britain, Pret a manger, it's like the yeah. the mojo of um, sandwich stores. Yeah, and they wear something like this. So I've decided to burn this Agnes B shirt rather than wear it. <laughs> oh, no, today. bring it back. I want it if you, if you don't want it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, I have to get a slightly larger fit. Anyway, Bernard, we can't just you know, yes, talk bollocks here. the news. The news this week, uh, and we're going to start off internationally because, unfortunately, Robert Patman can't join us this week, and we've got a surfeit of local news. So we thought we'd start with the international stuff for the first few minutes because I have not been following the rest of the world. I've been donkey deep in budget documents. Peter, mm. what's going on, firstly, in Turkey, where there's been an election? Turkey sort of pops up and down in our psyche. And one of the reasons I did so much on it in my spin-off thing this week is because it is so incredibly important in Europe and in the world. You know, it's a NATO member. Erdogan, the, pre- the, the president, has been kind of uh, very fickle in his, you know, it's all about him. It's all about a somewhat harder line vision of, of an Islamic, Tur- not necessarily an Islamic Turkey, but Islam in Turkey, going away from the um, from the secular nature of um, the Turkish government, really, that we've had since since uh, Kemal Ataturk. So there's some very fundamental 
uh, things at work when you look at Turkey, including, of course, their relation, Turkey's relationship with uh, Russia, where uh, Erdogan and Putin have, have been very close, but again, mm. very transactional. He's selling those cheap but very effective drones to the Ukrainians, which are causing such grief. That's exactly right. And you know, yet he also buys S-300 ground-to-air missiles from Russia and installs them in a NATO country, which makes the Americans and other NATO partners not terribly keen because, of course, it gives them experience with um, ground-to-air weapons that are um, being used, could be used by Russia against against NATO in future. And then you've got you know Turkey's really interesting relationship with Qatar. Um, you'll remember the mm. uh, killing of Jamal Khashoggi was in the uh, mm. Istanbul consulate uh, of Saudi Arabia, and that pushed Erdogan much much closer to Qatar. But he's now cultivating the Saudis. So it's a very interesting set of situations. You've got Turkey sitting there in Europe and in Asia as well. And what's what's happened is that uh, Erdogan, partly by suppressing rather brutally the political access, the access of media for the opposition, uh, is five points ahead. It's one of those systems where you have to get 50% of the vote to avoid a first round, and he got 49.5. He'll be in negotiations with the person who got 5% in order to be a sort of kingmaker. And I think it's May 24 is the next phase. And it's 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 a second time this kind of thing is... Um, You've had the situation you had in Hungary a couple of years ago when uh, Viktor Orban won again, where you get these kind of coalition of parties who just want the authoritarian leader out and are prepared to align themselves for as long as that takes. And that was what was what was trying to happen there. And they didn't quite make it. I mean, partly because they were suppressed so badly, including on Twitter. And it was very interesting. This was a very interesting test of Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter. He presumably almost literally himself allowed or acceded to a request from the Turkish government to suppress some Twitter accounts inside Turkey. Mm. Um, but on another level, and in fact, I got some criticism, Bernard, this week. From, to, from We have seen, uh, I mean, my, my headline in that thing was autocrats rule OK because of what Putin, Putin's mm. been up for, Orban and Xi Jinping. But in Thailand, you've had almost the reverse happen, where one of these sort of coalitions of the willing has not taken an absolute majority in parliament, but appears close enough if the military is prepared to accede a little bit of a little bit of space in Thailand um, to have potentially ended uh, quite a long period of somewhat authoritarian rule in Thailand. And of course, mm. Thailand it really matters. You've got the les majestes rule because the you know the king of you can't criticize the king of king of Thailand. Right. You go to jail if you criticize the king of Thailand, and that's been used by the military um, really to suppress uh, dissent. Uh, and behind all this, of course, you've got Taksin Shinawatra, the, the richest man in Thailand, mm. who hasn't been able to be back in the country because he's been effectively, uh, you know, fearing arrest when he gets back. And he's back in there pulling the strings from behind. So it's a very interesting uh, phase. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, as the person who criticized me for not putting it in my spinoff thing said, we don't look at Thailand enough. Thailand, Malaysia, we need to keep a really, you know, a really close eye on uh, from, a, from a New Zealand perspective. That Southeast Asia, the Philippines, India region becomes very important to us, not just as a source of migrants, but of tourists and export receipts and strategic connections. And uh, this mm. big meeting that's happening in Papua New Guinea uh, next week, which Chris Hipkins will attend and which won't involve Joe Biden because the debt ceiling talks are at a crucial point mm. and he's decided not to go to that, although he is going to the G7 meeting. We'll see quite a few uh, Pacific leaders come together 
and some of the sort of quad, as they call it, that is uh, forming together to uh, have a crack at China. Yeah, it's a very interesting phase. Bernard, I, I wrote something for North and South for the next issue, not just to promote, I think, about about the subtle aspects of whatever the Chris Hipkins international foreign policy is. You know, because he's 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 asked Nanaya Mahuta or said said that he wants Nanaya Mahuta out and about a bit more. I mean, she was practically invisible as foreign minister, although I think has handled China extraordinarily subtly and cleverly, um, as did Jacinda Ardern. But we really don't know yet what a Chris Hipkins policy is going to look like, except that it looks somewhat more conservative to me. It looks, you know, much more NATO, much more uh, talking to NATO, much more, you know, this consideration of the possibility of AUKUS. I think it's going to look a little more traditional than the multi, uh, multilateral uh, phase that we had under, under Jacinda Ardern. Which, of course, is the perfect cue for Craig. Oh, well, let's go straight to Craig. I'd like to introduce to the Hoon uh, Craig Rennie, who's a friend of the show. And uh, Craig is the uh, economist at the CTU and has been super busy this week. And I bumped into him briefly in the budget lockup. Craig, great to have you on the Hoon. Thank you for having me, Bernard. Hi, Craig. Thank you. What did you think of the budget and the uh, fallout from the budget? Well, there was a lot to like. In the budget, there was a lot of programs, and uh, one of the things the budget didn't do, which is always the classic political dilemma you have in an election year when things are a bit uncertain, is that you fall back on conservative tropes around the idea of that you need to roll back on the spending, roll back on the investment, make the fiscal indicators look fantastic, and then worry about things later on. And we're very lucky in that the government chose not to head down that austerity path, it chose instead to make some investments. We can argue about whether or not they're enough investment, but it continued to make some investments. And it made investments in areas which have genuine retail value for the government. So the Pharmac, the, the co-payment, $5, that's quite clearly got retail value. The extension of uh, 20, 20 hours free to two-year-olds for early childhood education, that has retail value. Free uh, public transport for under 13-year-olds and half price 25. Again, it's got retail value. Whether or not it equals a, a coherent grand plan for how we're going to grow the economy in the future and how we're going to deliver the kinds of infrastructure and the kinds of society we want to live, well, I don't think we're there yet. But it was a much better budget than possibly had been advertised, where you know it had definitely been sold as a bread and butter budget and no frills budget. There were definitely some frills in that budget, and it was helped by some quite sparkling, by start by context, economic numbers. We don't go into recession. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a bit of a, a headline from Treasury saying that we'll avoid a recession. But there is the concern of those worried about inflation and interest rates that at least initially the budget provides some extra stimulus to the economy in the first year or so. And then over the, the long four years of the budget forecasts, it is contractionary. Is there a concern here that the government has put a few sprinkles on the bread and butter, the hundreds and thousands of sprinkles on the mm. bread and butter, and is going to end up with Adrian Orr taking it away again next week with bigger rate hikes than he would otherwise have done? Well, I mean, if we look at where the Treasury's ended up with its inflation forecast, which includes the impact of the expenditure that's been laid out in the budget, inflation falls quite quickly, and particularly from right now. So inflation's 4.5% by the end of the year. 
and it's back inside the one to three percent midpoint target um, by September 2024. Now, to be honest, we probably should be looking through this spike in inflation anyway. There's very little we can do in the very short run to impact that inflation because that inflation is already inside the system. Mm. And if we're going to use the OCR the, uh, to tackle that inflation, well, that ship has sailed because it takes 18 months for an OCR decision to work its way through the channels into the real economy. So again, the CTU's been very clear in calling for the Reserve Bank just to pause. We've seen very large amounts of monetary policy action over the past 18 months, record increases in the OCR. Yet we haven't yet had a look to see whether or not the patients had enough medicine. Because mm. we believe the patient probably has had as much medicine as they need right now. And we should just let that work its way through the system. Craig, is, is it correct that from an all sort of orthodoxy point of view that people have watched what happened with George Osborne uh, and his various budgets in the UK going into austerity mode at a time when the economy was starting to shrink and, and there were grave risks that actually by adopting an austerity stance, you just compound the difficulty rather than uh, going for what Bernard would probably think of as a Keynesian response. But this, this doesn't seem excessively generous, but it does seem sensitive to not going down the austerity route. Um, I would certainly agree. I mean, the, the evidence from the UK, from the Office of Budget Responsibility and from credible organisations um, like the Institute for Fiscal Studies um, has shown that the, the austerity package that was put together by George Osborne and David Cameron not only made the impact of what was already a bad event worse, it disproportionately spread the impact onto low and, and middle income households. Mm. And to be frank, spared those on higher incomes because assets went up in value during that period of time. So there's lots of evidence overseas that actually if we take pro-cyclical, regardless of whether that's up or down, tends to have negative consequences on the overall economy. And if we had withdrawn significant amounts of investment, if we'd withdrawn significant amounts of spending without something to fill its place in terms of private sector um, investment, then by definition, we would be very rapidly reducing private demand in the economy mm. and with all of the negative consequences that brings. Craig, does it, is that landing with the public, do you think? I mean, it's hard for you to tell, but, but I, I don't want to ask you an overtly political question, but is that idea of, because I mean, the, the budget looks like it has an expiry date of about October, you know, end of October this year, but maybe it also does indicate an alignment to the needs of people who are in the kind of lower middle class in New Zealand. I think one of the things that most people care about right now is the cost of living and their ability to pay their mortgage. And it's the things that are that are right in front of them that they really care about. You know, the ability to put food on the table, the ability to get through the day to day. And they just want that to stop. They don't actually, frankly, care how it stops. They'll worry about that when it happens. And um, this is about laying out a plan. And what a, what a good budget does is it lays out what does good look like in the economy mm -hmm. and how are you going to get there? And what are the challenges that are in front of you? And there was some things in the budget that gave a direction of travel to that. The science expenditure, for example, and um, we're going to hire into that 260 PhD students um, mm -hmm. as part of that program. You know, the ECE um, spending so that we're going to uh, free up um, some labor market capacity. All of those things are great, but they're just the start of that plan that's necessary in order to deliver um, the kind of future we want to see. And uh, the final part I'd say in here is that what we're not doing is tackling the long-term 
challenges in this space. We're still oper- we're still playing the game by somebody else's rules. We're still operating at frankly flat levels of spending of GDP. We're still operating at frankly flat levels of taxation of GDP. We're still frankly operating at flat levels of debt. So where we are now in 2027, um, structurally, will be broadly the same. Just finally, uh, Craig, what was your highlights and your lowlights of the budget? Oh, definitely the highlight um, of the budget for me was the ability to uh, to see the government acknowledge that there are investments that will not only make a difference to uh, to New Zealanders, but to put money in their pockets um, and to actually and to deliver, uh, um, you know, have cost of living benefits, which actually have benefits for the community and for society. And again, the work that we did in the ECE on, on bus fares, on on prescription fees and a range of other areas. The real highlight in there was the insulation program. Um, 100,000 mm. households being insulated as a consequence of this program. Um, that could be enormously beneficial and could really set a trend for actually how uh, improve the, frankly, inadequate New Zealand housing stock in this space and help meet our climate change targets along the way. As ever, the, uh, the low lights was the catering, but we'll gloss over. That. <laughs> <laughs> too, too many bloody sausage rolls, I, I reckon. Um, must have been leftovers from the ninth floor. Craig, hey, thank you very much. Lovely to see you, and we'll talk again soon, uh, maybe as soon as next week, um, when Adrian Orr will determine the fate of the government. I'm kidding. Well, not really. Thank you, Craig. Lovely to see you, Craig. Now, we'd like to uh, welcome in a fresh guest to The Hoon who is coming at us to talk about competition, inflation, and what's happening with, in particular, the building materials sector. But also, we've got uh, market studies that have come through on supermarkets, and we may well have a market study on banking. Tex, welcome into The Hoon. Thank you. Nice to see everybody. Thanks, Tex. I'm just moving my camera so in case the fox comes back, by the way. Peter has been in, in London and we've had a fox in the background. It's been super exciting. Now, I'm thinking of reintroducing them to New Zealand, actually, as well. I don't think there'll be anybody in the noxious pest board that will worry about that, will there? Don't smuggle them in on the plane in your, in your back pockets. That could be an uncomfortable flight. Mm. <laughs> um, Tex, uh, Tex Edwards is uh, one of the founders of Two Degrees and a close observer of what's happening in competition in various sectors. Tex, um, I wondered, what did you think of this week's announcements from the government in response to the building materials market study from the Commerce Commission? In particular, the government hasn't really intervened to change much in the market and has talked about monitoring prices. But what did you think? Pretty predictable. Uh, it was positive. And there's clear and present signals central government and the cabinet understand what the problems are. In New Zealand, we've gone from, from basically having a 25-year holiday at central government level of building social houses. And in the last five years, that 25-year holiday on building social houses has ended and they've built a new organisation called Kainga Aura to build social houses and they've gotten back into building thousands of houses a year and they're going to proceed to building tens of thousands of houses a year the rest of the decade. So they've got this big machine going called house building for the state and they actually understand what the problem is. If I describe to the group today what the problem is in one sentence, it's New Zealand builds social houses at approximately 4,000 bucks a square metre, mm-hmm. when international best practice is about 800 bucks a square metre. So whichever way you look at it, and whatever number you want to use, 
hell could break loose at reducing the cost of construction in New Zealand. The government understands there's a problem there. And they had two or three sentences in their response which showed they really understood the pathway forward, which is a use of OSM, off-site house building techniques, but also scale. And that, to the trained eye, I think they, they've really lit a fuse underneath the building industry saying gradually, incrementally, each year you've got to increase the amount of OSM you have to build if you want to be part of our social housing construction. And inevitably, probably in, during the course of the election or sometime in the next couple of years, the general public will get an understanding of just the cost differential in New Zealand relative to OECD best mm. practice on what house construction costs are. We thought that the market study was sensible and reasonable. We were shocked how few people turned up, um, and we felt embarrassed that we were the only people there. Really. You um, also noticed that a whole bunch of government departments and um, state-owned operations who should have a huge interest in building materials costs actually didn't submit in this market study. Tell us about that. We'll be mentioning in our press release, actually, that you know, government departments buy materials. Government departments are big purchasers in these private sector markets that are capital B broken. Um, and it's outrageous in our mind that Kainga Aura, Hada, Productivity Commission, even the Treasury didn't submit or participate in these quite useful, quite sensible processes, which are still new for New Zealand. And I think produce some accurate analysis. You can't have industry transformation overnight. One report isn't going to create industry transformation. But the comprehension building that took place in central government and the sensible work the Commerce Commission did means that the process is moving forward. If it were me, I would always argue that the Commerce Commission needs to set up a fixing broken markets division because there are too few people here in New Zealand who, who can actually articulate what it means to fix a broken market. There's Speaking so many of people who benefit from broken markets, but nobody wants to fix them. Mm. Speaking of broken markets, there is the potential for the government to do a market study on banking. You're part of the Monopoly Watch group, which watches uh, monopolies. What's your view on you know, uh, the uh, opportunity to improve competition in banking? And recalling, of course, that you were one of the founders of Two Degrees, which benefited from some targeted regulation and intervention, including number portability. And so what's your view on banking? We published a 17-point plan on what a banking market study should look at. My view is it's inevitable, if it's not this year, it'll be next year or the year after, that a banking market study is done. Australia had, had a sort of commission inquiry into not just how banks compete against each other, but naughty, naughty behaviours and immoral and you know, nonsense that, that you expect in large corporates. But a, a banking market study should primarily focus on international best practice in data management and switching banks. In New Zealand, it's very difficult to switch banks. Of course, the banks won't say that. They'll say they're going to heaven and all their customers are living in heaven and it's heaven, heaven, heaven. But the numbers speak for themselves. And it's not just about the profitability of the banks. It's actually about the quality of their service, ease of switching, and actually it's financial innovation for bespoke financial situations that doesn't happen because you don't need to. Tex, if, if, we, if we got that right, could New Zealand be a bit of a, a lab for fintech? New Zealand's way behind eight more in fintech anyway because I'm going to say the UK had their fintech initiatives 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. 
uh, a banking market study would inevitably look at what fintechs could do to create synthetic bank account number portability so you could switch mm-hmm. banks really easy. And Monopoly Watch was really concerned that the banks would game any inquiry or game open banking. So that's where you needed a, a very tight definition of bank account number portability and you set competition targets in not just price issues, but also service issues and bespoke pro- financial products as the population yeah. ages. And, and Tex, may I ask you one, just going back to housing for a minute, was, you, you know, this difference in, in cost, and I'm thinking of particularly of Kaingora, but is it possible that there's a somewhat positive sign to this that we build better quality public housing than some other places, that there's a higher commitment to architectural integrity, or is that just wishful thinking? I think the architectural integrity of social housing in New Zealand is commendable, but that doesn't mean that you can't have that at cheaper prices. Mm-hmm. And the major issue here is actually it's outside Kaingora because if you look at climate change commitment to energy performance in homes, in the next 15 years, New Zealand has to build not 100,000 homes, but about 800,000 homes have to be retrofitted or rebuilt. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely <laughs> essential that New Zealand get its cost of construction in the economy market segment of construction. New Zealanders only ever build premium houses or luxury houses. There's no industry building economy market segment houses. And you can have architectural success um, in OSM and you can have architectural success at better pricing. And I think that's what the direction we need to head in. Thank you. Tex, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much uh, for coming on. Tex has been one of those tireless workers focused on monopolies and uh, a relative lack of competition in various sectors. And I'm cheering him on from, from the sidelines, as we all should, because one of the reasons we have such high inflation, uh, not just here, but in other parts of the world, is that in the last two or three years, a bunch of industries which have had market power have managed to increase their profit margins during this period of stress where the supplies weren't there and there was plenty of demand and those with market power were able to increase their their margins. And uh, I think it'll be one of the big stories in the next couple of years, um, the study on the banks. And right now the banks are in a position where they, in many ways, um, hold the government's futures, futures in its hands because if there is a rise in interest rates in the next two or three months in wholesale markets and by the official cash rate by the Reserve Bank, it will be the banks who decide whether or not we pass on that in the form of higher mortgage rates, which of course will be politically difficult. Great to see you, Tex. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Tex. And uh, now it's it's time to welcome on another fresh guest to the show and someone who I've been corresponding with in recent months about the issue of the prescription fee, the $5 prescription fee that people have to pay when they uh, they get their prescriptions. And welcome into the hoon to Lanny Wong, who's calling in from Mungify. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Lanny is a pharmacist in Mungify and part of a group of independent pharmacists who've been campaigning on this issue. And the reason I've been interested in it is about three or four months ago, um, there was a very interesting study showing that this $5 prescription fee was effectively um, forcing many people who couldn't afford it to not take their medications and leading to a whole bunch of unnecessary pain and 
people having to go to hospital, to A&E, um, amputations, and in some cases, deaths. So, Lanny, this week, I was thrilled to see the government announce in the budget that the $5 prescription free was going for all at a cost of over $600 million over four years. So it's a, it's a major thing. Could you tell us, as a pharmacist, what you were seeing with this $5 fee from the point of view of those people who needed medications and how it was having an impact in your community? I think this is this is the really good news for everyone. It's um, absolutely what the community needed, um, especially the people that really struggle. And um, I think, you know, we're probably seeing a lot less people spending money at the moment just on, you know, items. And to be honest, this this payment is is a tax for the sick people. And, you know, at the moment, since the announcement, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric sort of thrown around saying, you know, if we can afford to pay, they should be paying. But, you know, you don't know when you're going to get sick. And when you do get sick, um, there's a lot of costs involved. You're out of work. You are, you know, or someone had to stop work to care for you. And it's always a financial struggle when you're unwell. And then the last little leg is when you come to the pharmacy to pick up medicine. And, um, you know, and then the pharmacists tell you there's um, 20 to $50 charge on your prescription and you've only got $10 left to pay for whatever you need. Um, yeah, and often we do see people having to choose between food or medicine, um, and that's, that's a very common occurrence. Could you give us some examples of what you've seen and you've heard about from other pharmacists of how this has you know, changed the way that people's treatments have been done or you know, what actually happened to them? Yeah, oh, it happens every day. You know, we get people that are on inhalers, um, for example. You know, that, that happens you know, two or three times a day usually. You have someone come in with a preventer and a reliever and more commonly the patient will come in and go, I don't want my preventer, I just want my reliever. And that, that's really bad news for mm. their asthma and for a chronic condition, that's really bad news. And another thing that people don't really realise is that, you know, we have Pharmac that negotiate these medicines. They're, they're really expensive medicine. We negotiate, we've got it at a really cheap price for New Zealand. Um, it could be a $75 inhaler that I'm holding in front of them, but it only costs them $5, but they're not taking it because they prefer mm. their preventer. But who cares about this $75 preventer that's going to stop me getting into hospital, but because of that $5, they don't take it. And it just seems so pointless when we have such a good, um, robust negotiating body yeah. for, for medicine Very prices true. and but, just but to have that money, $5. Is there evidence that it costs more to collect than it costs to, uh, the, than the revenue from it? And that, it, or the, the $5 thing is, is, is there as a political gesture? Yeah, I think it's something that we need to look at why this fee was introduced in the first place. I think, you know, this fees were brought in back in the 80s when the pharmaceutical budget was off the chart. So, um, so the fee was brought into how, trying to help the spending of this pharmaceutical budget. Um, and then Pharmac came along in the 90s. You know, Pharmac did a fantastic job, you know, keeping the prices down. And I think New Zealand is the envy of the world pretty much in terms of, you know, medicine prices and the cost of pharmaceutical. So, Technically, Pharmac's done a really good job bringing down this pharmaceutical budget, but the fee remain, and the fee have become, I guess, you know, in recent decades, it's become more or less a political football, if you like. Um, so, um, so it was, you know, when I first started in pharmacy school, it was fifteen dollars for the rich, five dollars for community services card holder, and then um, later on, when I think it was when PHO came in, everyone went down to three dollars because the Labor government decided everyone needs to join PHO. 
And then from then on, it went up to $5. And this is the bit that no one talks about. It went up to $5, which is still affordable for majority of New Zealand, but we never mm. thought about the impact it had on the most vulnerable people. So that was an extra $2 for mm. the poor people. And we never yeah. discussed that. And it's remained that way for many, many years. So this is really good news that we're finally talking about this again and um, doing something about it. Yeah, it's a really punitive sort of equity argument sometimes to say there has to be a charge because you know all those bloody bludgers are going to are going to be taking too much medicine and getting getting healthy and actually it might stop being bludgers then if they oh oops. Um, but Lenny, may I ask you a question because it's interesting in the UK. I'm in the UK at the moment and England is about to do something that Scotland did a long time ago, which is give pharmacists more latitude in treating people in for relatively minor conditions. And what's the status with that in New Zealand? That You've got this incredible pool of local, highly intelligent, highly sophisticated people who are you know, doing a lot more than just giving out Viagra. What's the situation in New Zealand with pharmacists helping people with health problems or being, being given more permission to do so? I think that's in discussion at the moment. And if you have another hour, this is another topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, certainly um, there's some uh, meetings going on and how we're going to get through winter and um, there's been a few indication and um, some indication that pharmacists will be providing the minor ailment service in New Zealand. Um, and at this stage, um, there isn't a lot of information about it. I couldn't really tell you too much more. Um, mm. I know Billy Allen at the Ministry of Health and the pharmacy team are working really hard to try and roll this out. There's a lot of discussion around perhaps it not being a very national program at the moment. There's some region that are being excluded, but at this stage, I couldn't tell you any more than what you've heard in the media, unfortunately. So, um, but certainly, you know, like I agree with um, everything that's been said, pharmacists are very underutilized and, you know, we can do a lot more. And I think we've shown that during the COVID lockdown when we could, you know, mass vaccinate a whole a whole population. Um, so that's, you know, we can demonstrate, we, we definitely demonstrate we can do a lot more than just counting pills, yeah. if you like. Um, so, yeah, but certainly at the moment, there's still, a few problems that need to be sorted out in the pharmacy profession. Um, at this stage, we're, we're struggling with workforces. Um, so we've got all these wonderful things that we can do, but suddenly um, we just haven't got enough pharmacists to do the job. So we, that's something else we need to look at. Lenny, just one final question from me. The opposition, Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis, have come out last night and said they would bring back the $5 charge but that it would be exempt for people with community services cards and gold cards because Christopher Luxon said um, he can afford the $5 and it's not fair for people, rich people like him to get away with um, you know, free prescriptions. What do you think of this idea of, of targeting it so that people with community services cards and gold cards don't have to pay the $5 fee, but everyone else does? Look, I think that's still a very evidence-based sort of um, <coughs> policy, if you like. You know, the, the, the study that came out from Otago this year by, by Professor Pauline Norris do indicate it's the most vulnerable patient that will benefit from it the most. Um, however, what I would caution you know, the National Party is that it is challenging to identify who deserve it. Like, where do you draw the line is where mm. I would I would ask them. And the other thing that, you know, I think that needs to take into consideration is definitely the, um, the forgotten mid middle, if you like. You know, like, you could be a person who's not entitled to community services card, but you could be, yeah. you know, in a very, you know, could be spending like 50% of your daily wage, um, weekly wage and rent, and you get sick. That is when things 
snowball and it's, you know, this, this is the sort of people I see every day. They could be one day they are, you know, beautiful, um, woman with nice nails coming in the next day, they're coming in in crutches because they've had a stroke. And that's, that's a huge life changing. And that, that throws everyone out because the husband's got to stay home and look after, look after his wife. And this is the sort of story we don't hear about. No, I think we do need you back on, Lanny, to talk about this because the, the other thing with the, the Luxon process is it just, just dramatically increased the costs of collection. Any extra layer of examination or analysis is going to just increase. We, we do need to have some better equity arguments about this, Bernard, possibly coming out of you know the kaka, but with, with people like Lanny to, um, to help us on this. Thank you so much, Lanny. Lanny, thank you very much for reaching out to me. And um, I really appreciated your messages. And I was... Opened up the budget documents this morning and I did a little fist pump because that was a great piece of news. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lenny. Lenny Wong there uh, from Mungafai, where she runs a pharmacy and is part of the independent pharmacists group that has been campaigning to get rid of the $5 fee. And clearly can afford huge amounts of money for a stylish and well-equipped office. Well, it looks like a very busy space. <laughs> I'm also the IT person, so I need ah, cable exactly. to test. Um, <laughs> apparently, 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 you need to reduce the amount of memory that your laptop, or increase the amount of memory in your laptop, or reduce what's. This in is it. the issue with rule. I cannot just call an IT guy to come and fix no, my no. phone. Like, <laughs> I need to do it myself. Yeah. Of course. Thank you again, uh, Lanny. Lovely to see you. Thank you. It was uh, wonderful to be on here. Well, and we'd love to invite into our uh, show a regular guest, Josie. Fantastic to see you there. Big week. Big week. Kia ora, guys. Yeah, actually, what a great interview with Lanny. Um, and, you know, here's a statistic. I don't know whether Lanny mentioned this, but there was a guy, a doctor who tweeted, who uh, works at Middlemore, tweeted last night that she basically, because people can't afford a, a $5 prescription, uh, she sees people coming back, people she's already mm. prescribed antibiotics to and so on, they come back with pneumonia costing $700 a night in hospital, right? So, I mean, it just, you know, I mean, even if you're just looking at the economics of it, and here's a statistic, the $5 prescription fee, it stopped 135,000 people last year picking up their prescriptions Bloody for hell. all sorts of complicated reasons. But, you know, the idea that looking at this politically, the idea that the National Party, their immediate instinct uh, after the budget was to come out with an election slogan, which is basically, we will tax the sick. You know, what were they thinking? <sighs> you know, we'll bring back prescription charges. Really? You really think that's going to be an election winner? Yeah, and for me, it was another misstep from uh, Christopher Luxon. What was the story yesterday was building to be about inflation and interest rates. This morning, it's about Christopher Luxon having to row back on his, well, his party's, you know, mm. mean mean policy uh, switch. And now he's had to soften it a bit by saying, well, uh, actually, I really meant, uh, you know, people who have the community services card and the gold card don't have to pay for it, but other people will have to pay for it. It just struck me as another one of those cases where the first instincts were wrong. Yeah. And um, Josie, you, you've been following politics and politicians and leaders for a long time. You saw John Key and Helen Clark. You know, what do you think of Christopher Luxon, who this week we discover from a couple of polls has a net unfavorability rating with undecided voters? So what do you think of what Christopher Luxon's up to? Yeah, I mean, you you just summed it up, Bernard. Why are they playing into this 
cliche of being the nasty party. And and when mm-hmm. national wins, it's when they counter that, you know, and it's the old adage of only Nixon could go to China. You know, if the National Party, rather than the Labour Party, the National Party started talking about inequality and helping people with prescription charges and so on, you go, wow, that's amazing because that's unexpected. And I think that's part of the problem. Like, you know, the fact that their instincts were to go to that place straight away and go, hmm. we'll bring the prescription charges back, whereas actually they had a huge opportunity, I think, strategically, to come up with something like, this is as good as it gets under Labour. If you think this budget's okay, if you think this budget delivers vision and hope and growth and, you know, a vision for the future of New Zealand then good on you. But if you don't, this is as good as it gets under Labour. So if you want change, if you want something better, vote for us. Josie, is that, are they trying to outflank David Seymour by doing that? Well, no, I would say that someone like David Seymour is actually taking risks and coming up with things that might not be popular, you know, and he's he's not afraid to even... You know, as we saw last year, to say something like, well, actually, I support the GST on financial services because it's at least a consistently applied mm. uh, and fair <laughs> approach to a tax, even though I don't like tax. You know, so he he kind of, um, no, I don't think he's outflanking David Seymour. I think he's underflanking himself. Mm-hmm. I think it's less about flanking and it's more about face planting. Um, face planting, yeah. And- yeah, because not only was he aligning himself with the grumpy party and the mean party, you know, making people pay for their $5 prescription fees and therefore potentially clogging up A&E this winter, but also he made the point to show how out of touch he was, I think, on this. He said, well, people can go to Chemist Warehouse anyway because they don't charge the $5 fee, which basically says, I don't know that Everywhere else in New Zealand, apart from Auckland and Wellington and one or two other big cities, so all the small provincial towns, the small provincial cities, there's Mm. no chemist warehouse there. They've got struggling small pharmacies. Well, Lanny was reminding me how marvellous it is to have your local local pharmacist. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, why would you say uh, we want you all to shop at an Australian-owned mega business like Chemist Warehouse and and undercut all the independent chemists in your local Well, that's right. Party of small business? No, actually, there's party of big business. Yeah, I mean, this is just it, isn't it? On the one hand, and I, I know we've talked about this before, on the one hand, I think he's being too careful, too risk-averse. You know, he's afraid, he's second-guessing himself all the time. And, you know, I think I called it last time, you know, the, the Ming vase approach to politics, you know, where he's carrying a priceless Ming vase across a slippery dance floor. You know, so on the one hand, he's risk-averse. On the other hand, just, yeah, instinctively goes to this kind of very risky place, I would have mm. thought, which is, you know, we're still the nasty party who's going to make, you know, the poor people pay more. Maybe he's actually Ming the, Ming the Merciless, Josie, because he's not so much <laughs> yeah. the, Ming, the Ming vase as Ming the Merciless. Right, right. And, and I love it that I was thinking, you know, what's the opposite of that? And I, I've come up with this idea that it's politicians who are walking across a, a, a crowded dance floor with a tray of drinks, you know, so <laughs> that's the kind of politician I like. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just think they're, they're kind of not, that their instincts aren't right on this. They're actually missing an opportunity to be, you know, the party that goes, we've got a bigger, better vision than Labour and these guys are just not delivering. Which, which I would say that Nicola Willis has sometimes communicated, usually after one or two gins and tonics on the show with Bernard. Yeah. Maybe Nicola is a bit, a bit more imaginative than, than, than what's his name? What's his name? But yeah, not a good sign if you're calling him what's his name, Peter. Um, yes, but it was Nicola Willis last yesterday who came up 
you know, straight away with the we'll bring back prescription charges and then mm. it was Christopher Lutzen who pulled it back. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of talk and there's a legitimate debate about universality of things like prescription, free prescription charges for everybody and targeted ones, as you just discussed with Lanny. But, uh, and that's a legitimate debate. But, you know, really budgets are a little bit like, you know, chucking ping pong balls at people, aren't they? I mean, there's just so much information that you throw at people. I, this is, your, your, your metaphors are getting completely out of hand and rather fabulous. They are. Oh, they're very good. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm liking them, actually, Peter. In fact, don't interrupt me. I'm on a flow. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we're chucking, chucking ping pong balls at the voters. You can't control which ping pong ball the voters grab, right? And I think they've grabbed this ping pong ball that says, oh, my gosh, you know, the National Party will, will bring back prescription charges, even if I didn't support getting rid of the costs of them, that they're going to bring them back. Yeah. No, this was actually quite clever politics from Labor yesterday. There's a couple of little landmines in that budget. Firstly, the $5 prescription charge. They laid it out in front of Nicola Willis and she jumped on it, unfortunately, for, for National. But also, you've got the free uh, school lunches. So this was extended in the budget to the end of 2024. That means it lapses at the end of 2024. It means that during the election campaign, people like me are going to be hammering away at Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis. Are you going to extend the free lunches? Mm. Yeah. Do you want poor people to not have lunch and not learn during the day? Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch as we know, Bernard. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. And as it turns out, it's it's about $300 million worth to extend it to the end of 2024. Um, there's a couple of these little things where things have only been extended to 2024, which essentially means National will have to say during the election campaign what they're going to do. It can't just mm. dribble on. It's going to have a, a hard end, a cliff edge. And so you've got the, uh, the end of the preschool lunches, but also the end of the apprenticeship boost scheme. Now, if you haven't heard of the, if our listeners haven't heard of the apprenticeship boost scheme, I think it's the single most effective policy Chris Hipkins managed to get in as education minister during COVID, where essentially he made it uh, free for people to uh, train as an apprentice and some money was also given to small businesses to take on apprentices. It's been very effective. Uh, a lot of small businesses have said this is the most the most brilliant thing we've ever had. And mm. it was due to end at the end of COVID. Now, uh, Chris Sipkins, as education minister, um, begged and scraped and managed to get Grant Robertson to extend it for a bit. And in the budget, it was extended again until the end of 20, 2024. But it will mean that National, if they're being the, the mean, nasty, cheap party, will have to essentially kick young apprentices in the ghoulies um, yeah. if they if they end it. And so that, it's one of those landmines that's been laid out there. It was It's one mm. of the um, uh, untold stories, I think, of this budget is that not only was it able to try to thread the needle between inflation on one side and providing some uh, juicy bits and pieces for people on the other, but also to lay these landmines out in front of national during the election campaign. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can you can uh, introduce free lunches for school kids and people will debate whether that's a good idea or not. Take it away and more people are going to not like it, you taking it away, right? So that's more unpopular than the debate we might have about whether this is a good policy or not. And, and I think that's the other thing for national is that, you know, the recent, I think it was the News Hub poll, over 50% of New Zealanders support some kind of wealth tax, right? Now, that doesn't mean they've suddenly gotten envious and think that, you know, it's a bloody rich people, blah, blah, blah. It's that they're kind of going, I think I'm paying a bit too much and I think I think some people aren't paying enough and I think we need to address that. 
So National are putting themselves on the wrong side of public opinion there, and then they're putting themselves on the wrong side of a public opinion as well by not owning the right track, wrong track data, which again, mm. over 50% of the population think the country's on the wrong track. So they could have owned that yesterday and gone, if you think this budget's on the wrong track, um, you've got to vote for us because we'll put it on the right track. You know, <laughs> there were so many opportunities for them. But you're right, Bernard, the, the, I think the government's done pretty well with this budget. I don't think it's an election winner, but they were constrained three ways, weren't they? They can't spend too much because it's inflationary. They can't spend too little because there's, there's big social problems. And then they can't do the structural changes that you and I want, like change the tax system, because we're only about 150 days out from an election. Given all of those constraints, they've managed to come up with something that is going to increase inflation a little bit maybe. You might see higher interest rates. There's, a, there's enough there for the social deficit and there's no structural change. So they've probably succeeded in that. Josie, how open do you think New Zealanders are to an argument about intelligent equity or an, equi- an equitable approach that is also based on intelligence, like not having fees that are just stupid to collect that you really only have there for this kind of symbolic beating up of poor people? You know, there are politicians who are more like diplomats and then there are politicians of conviction. And and for me, you know, politics is about persuading. And often when you're persuading, it's that some people don't think this is a good idea. So it's not actually a popularity contest. I know Mm. it is getting elected. Yes, I get that. But it's actually about, you know, you go into politics because you believe something. So let's say, you know, you want to see some equity in the tax system. Well, for God's sake, go out and make the case and work out how to how to persuade people. Mm. And, and if you lose, it's okay. You, you, you can be satisfied that you gave it a go. But this morning I, I did um, the Child Poverty Action Group breakfast, the budget breakfast thing, and everyone in the room is furiously agreeing, you know, we need to change the tax system, it's une- it, 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 unequity, there's, there's an equity problem there, we need structural systemic change. Mm. You know, yes, everybody agrees. Um, and the question I had for them was, so how are you going to persuade people who don't agree or who think that this is not a problem or that they're really worried about more tax? Or to understand, yeah. And I yeah. think actually the substantive answer to that, Peter, is a tax switch. You, you, you promote a tax switch. So you're not going more taxes. You're going, no, no, we're just going to make, you know, we're going to have a tax-free Rebalance it towards equity. bottom threshold and, and, and we're going to tax capital yeah. more. You know, or, I, I presume that was a champagne breakfast for poverty action, was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had the champagne before I went, but yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Some preloading. Now, Josie, just I was just thinking about your fabulous metaphors, and it reminded me. I mean, I think possibly maybe you are the Clive James of New Zealand. Oh, great! Because your thing about the about the ping pong balls reminded me of his remark that Arnold Schwarzenegger looked like a, a condom filled with walnuts. Very <laughs> 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 good. <laughs> yeah. We, that escalated, as they say. I fantasise about being the sort of Christopher Hitchens of New Zealand, but I was talking to my husband Jesus. about this, and he went, "No, you're not that." <laughs> yeah, that's so. good. Yeah, we we'll just try not to be the Peter Hitchens of, of New Zealand. That's a very <laughs> no, good thing. No, no, no. <laughs> just, fi- just finally, Josie, um, we've got some uh, uh, polling out of Curia, which um, shows that there's a net unfavorability for Christopher Luxon, and he's obviously well behind uh, Chris Hipkins in the preferred PM stakes. How important do you think these sort of personal popularity measures are in any election result? I mean, neither of them are overwhelmingly popular, are they? It's not like you've got a Christopher Luxon who's struggling against a, you know, sort of global superstar like Jacinda Ardern. So, 
um, I think in that sense, this is not going to be the election where we go, you know, we're, we've fallen in love with this one, but not this one. Um, and, you know, I think for national, t- actually I've heard several times today people have asked me, do you think there should be a change in leadership? And, you know, so obviously it's bubbling away under the surface um, and that usually means that national MPs are talking about it too. But I think it would be a disaster for national right now. I mean, they don't have... Um, a phenomena like Jacinda Ardern in the background. Um, and, you know, and I'm saying that as somebody who was, was you know, critical of, of Jacinda Ardern's style of politics, you know, but I acknowledge her popularity, right? So there isn't somebody there who could replace him. So mm-hmm. what they've got to do is is work out why he's unpopular. And I, and I kind of think he's just got to embrace the fact that we do think he's the guy from management and we think, you know, Chris Hipkins is the guy from, uh, you know, the, the, the boy from Upper Hutt. And, and we'd rather have a beer with the boy from Upper Hutt. But the guy from management can charm us and win us over if, they, if, if A, he's authentic. I've seen him, you know, chairing, tier, he was on the board of Tier Fund, one of the aid charities um, when I worked in the aid sector. You know, he was really well respected. He's a decent guy. His, 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 his motives are genuine, I think. So, you know. Be yourself. Be the guy who labels your drawers, things in your drawers, which you know <laughs> kind of terrifies most of us because um, it looks very overly organised. Own that side of yourself. Be yourself. Stop because we always look and he's kind of second guessing himself all the time. And I think that's what makes. Do, us- do you think he has an alphabetised spice drawer? Oh, I definitely think he does. <laughs> I, I would bet my life on it. Not that I know anybody <laughs> who would have such a thing. <laughs> no, no. Um, but then I think it's a pol- it, it's, this is going to be an election more about about policy, I think. And and National have to just get out of that, you know, classic hits from the 80s and 90s National Party and just surprise us, you know, use words like inequality, use words like uh, working class, you know, take some risks, um, but do it authentically and genuinely, <laughs> which I think, you know, they probably could, but they're not doing it at the moment. No. Josie, um, thank you so much for coming on. Great to, great to have you again and um, a, a really big week there. Josie Pagani, who is a columnist uh, for The Post, formerly The Dominion Post, the newspaper formerly known I was just as thinking, The Dominion Post. What, what do you even mean? I can't think what that is. Oh, you mean The Dominion. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the Post now. Thanks, Josie. Love, lovely to see you. Thank you very much. And Peter, um, as we close out um, the hoon for uh, this week to uh, May 19, you've got one more thing before our skateboarding dog. Well, I just want to, yeah, I, I, we've run out of time for me to do the main, the main thing that I was going to do. So I'm going to trail something that next week's podcast, which I'll be doing from New York, I want to ask people, and this is, I'm putting out an APB here and I'll explain why next week. If anybody on the on the podcast or hears the podcast knows anything about the Polish Army League, which it turns out that my grandmother and another woman from Palmerston North set up in I think 1941 mm. to look after or send the gifts to Polish soldiers during the war, um, mm. there's quite a good story coming about the Polish Army League, and it also relates to the Pahiatua child Polish yeah. child refugees, which is a fantastic story. And so, if anybody knows anything about the Polish Army League, uh, which was set up in Palmerston North in about 1941. I have a researcher in Poland who's very interested in it, and I'm very interested mm. in it because it involves my grandmother, who may be getting an award from the Polish, posthumously, of course, from the wow. Polish Prime Minister. 
president. Wow. So we'll, more about that next week from New York. Fantastic. I will include that in the um, text version that goes out with this um, hoon as well. Thank you. I might send you a little bit of information about it then, Bernard, but I'd love to, I'd love to know. So maybe uh, to Bernard rather than me. So, but although my email is peter at peterbale.com, which maybe is slightly risky to tell everybody here on. I'll get Brett Tamahori actually talking to me, you know, directly. Please, everyone, the... <laughs> email Peter. <laughs> but so this, my, my skateboarding dog story is that, is that really a dog joke. Is, a dog story is no no joke, and it's a bit of a, a bit of a shaggy dog story, which is um, a Chinese com- uh, comedy store being fined $3.3 million for a comedian accidentally or in- incorporating a famous line about uh, the Chinese um uh, People's Liberation Army, fight well, win in the battle, when he was telling a joke about two dogs chasing a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's dangerous so, in China. But, now, but you know, when we're thinking about that, thinking of squirrels, there's probably a couple of them out there. But I tell you, the cat got a hell of a fright from the uh, fox this morning. Um, I was going to say something ridiculous about foxes when we had Josie on, but I think that fox is, is definitely the star of the show, and I will try and find oh. something equivalent next week. Talk about live TV, action, action yeah. packed. The Garden fox, watch. the the new star of the hoon. In fact, I'm going to ask in the email, please, everyone who's been um, watching this live, um, uh, to tell us what you think the name of the of the fox on the hoon should be. Thank, you. thank you very much, Fox, fox Peter. All. See you later, Fox. <laughs> See you later, Kaki Tano, everyone. You've been with. Thank you. Peter Bale in London, Bernard Hickey in uh, Hoon Bay uh, for uh, the Kaka. Kaki Tano. See you, Bernard.